this, so hopefully I don't knock it off the stage while we're talking about <laughs> or the podium, so I'm just gonna leave it there. Good morning, ladies. I am excited to be back with you today. I'm really thankful for Sarah teaching first and second Kings. I'm really thought and for Dan for teaching the first two lessons in Exodus. I mean Isaiah. I really enjoyed getting to hear other teachers and appreciated the little break, and, but I'm excited to be back with you and excited to dive into Isaiah 40 through 55 with you guys. So let's open a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, thank you for each of these women. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you that you are giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. And we see that so clearly in our text today that you are the God who takes our punishment and gives us healing and salvation instead. And we ask that you'd help us to um, be hearers and doers of the word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So just a little refresh, like we do every week, reminding where we've been, where we're going. We have been studying the book of Isaiah. And as Dan shared, Isaiah is divided into three sections. So we said that the first section is chapters 1 through 39. And we said that's the book of the king. And that book focuses mainly on judgment, judgment on the nations, but we do see these glimmers of hope in a coming kingdom in Isaiah 2 and in the prophesied child in Isaiah 9 through 11 and the kingdom again in 34 and 35. And then we saw the second division in chapters 40 through 55, where we're going to be today, and that's the book of the servant. And we saw especially in the lesson, right, the servant songs with the book of the servant. And that's going to focus on the deliverance and restoration of Israel, and yet we do see that there's judgment also in there. So remember, these themes just kind of interweave, but we mostly see deliverance with some glimpses of judgment. And then the final section that we're going to be looking at next week is chapters 56 through 66, and that's the book of the anointed conqueror, and we're going to see future glory and righteous living, all right? And then we said that there was a message for the whole book. We're going to take the whole book of Isaiah and give it a central message. We took this from Dr. Todd Bolin, and we said, Israel must trust God. Israel must trust God because depending on foreign nations will only lead to exile. This theme of trust, going away from our definition for just a second, is so significant that I've even seen people divide the book in Isaiah into sections, all titled with, you must trust because of this reason, this reason. The whole book is divided by reasons why Israel has to trust. It is a big argument for trust in God. So Israel must trust God because depending on foreign nations will only lead to exile. Israel's judgment does not invalidate the covenant promises, for the Lord will raise up a righteous individual or a seed. We've been following this theme of the seed since Genesis 3.15. Who will suffer for the sins of the people in order that he may establish a kingdom of lasting peace with them. So we see all those threads that we've been looking at. The covenant promises, the kingdom promises, the seed. All of them are here in the book of Isaiah. We also talked about a prophet, because even though we saw some of the prophets in the book of Kings, this is the this is starting books that are about, we call the prophets, right? The minor prophets, the major prophets. And so what is a prophet? What does a prophet do? And we said a prophet is a covenant enforcer. They are to remind Israel, you are in the Mosaic covenant. You are to obey this covenant. And if you obey, there's blessings. If you disobey, there's curses. So the curses are coming because you're disobedient. Repent, come back to the Lord. And so they call them to repent, and they remind them of their covenant obligations. They enforce the covenant so that Israel doesn't forget Israel is um, guilty. And we looked at that. First 39 chapters, just to review where we were, Israel's going into exile. Hasn't happened yet, but Isaiah's saying, you're going and here's why. You're going because of empty religious practices, idolatry, pride, moral perversion, corrupt leadership, defiant sinfulness. We looked at all of those with Dan, but we could sum it up as a rejection of God or trusting in God's ways. 
coming back to that they're supposed to trust, but they didn't trust. But even though we saw that they're going in exile and it's a deserved exile, they brought this punishment on themselves, we also said that there's going to be a king who brings hope and a kingdom and restoration, and we saw glimpses of that. So as we start today, this is really going to be addressed to a people in exile. And the people in exile in these texts, they have a lot of questions on their mind. And the first question they would be wondering is, are we forgotten? Has God forgotten us? So Isaiah's going to remind them that God hasn't forgotten them. You know, they were in exile, even though in the span of history it might seem short. It was a lifetime. It was 70 years. And you can think, has God forgotten me? And then they have another question. Is God stronger than the gods of the nations? Because remember, in the ancient Near East, whichever nation conquered, their God was the stronger God. So Assyria's carried off the northern kingdom. Babylon's carried off the southern kingdom. Who has the stronger God? Is Yahweh really stronger than the na these other foreign nations' gods? And then third, is God going to keep his covenant promises? Are they real? Are they true? Because even though Israel has seen in their history glimpses of these promises, I mean, they waited hundreds of years to go in the promised land just to be taken out of the promised land. They only had a taste of what it would be like when the righteous king ruled under Solomon before he quickly fell aside. They've never really enjoyed and lived in the covenant promises. And now they're in exile. So are these, co are these covenants real? Is God going to really bring it to pass? These are the questions that are on the mind of the people. So as we go into our text today, turn to Isaiah 40, and I'm going to be using for my whole lesson, outline, uh, my, my Dr. Tabon was a professor of mine, and he got to teach Isaiah chapter by chapter, which is really nice, I'm learning as we go through it like this. So chapter by chapter, and he, so I took his outlines from all of those and kind of put it together to give my mind, my mind works really well with outlines and structures, structure for this, so I'm just giving him credit at the outset. All of these outlines we're going through, I am taking from him, and I'm very thankful for those resources. So as you turn to Isaiah 40, I'd like to read a quote from you from Barry Webb and his book, The Message on Isaiah, for how, just explaining how this chapter works. Chapter 40 is an overview of the major themes of the rest of the book of Isaiah. The opening part of chapter 40 is like an overture to a great musical composition. All the major themes which the following chapters will develop so powerfully get their first exploratory treatment here. Comfort, atonement, the way of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the power of the word of God, the city of God, and the might and tenderness of Zion's Savior. It leaves us full of expectation that a whole new movement in God's dealings with his people is about to unfold. And I love that, I, that picture of it's a musical composition because I've seen people actually describe the whole book. Commentators describe all of Isaiah that way. We as Americans tend to like to think um, linearly. We like maps and we like data charts and we like to have it all and Isaiah does not work like that. He just takes one theme and weaves it with an, it's more like a musical composition or a symphony where you have different movements coming in and different melody. I don't even know enough about music to fully pull that analogy through but it's thematic and it weaves things together instead of following things linearly or chronologically and we're going to see that in Isaiah 40 and I picked this because we don't have time to go through every theme and every chapter and how it's developed between chapters 40 and 50 today, but they're all in this chapter. So maybe this summer you can go back and dig a little deeper and say, okay, we saw it in Isaiah 40 and here's how we see it deeper in these other chapters, but I wanted us to touch on all of them and this chapter does. And so I'm going to divide Isaiah 40 into, and my real creative titles for my two points today is Isaiah 40. That's point one. And point two is the servant songs. So, but Isaiah 40, I have divided into three sections, or Todd Bolin has, and we're going to use, the, we're going to look at them looking at verses one through 11, and we're going to see comfort in the Lord's coming. So the first thing we see in Isaiah 40 
is that Israel should have comfort in the Lord's coming. So read with me in verses 1 through 2. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And right now we should be going, whoa, they're going to be forgiven. It will really help you today for the lecture and even just to understand what this would be like for the readers at this time if you can forget everything else that you know about the Bible from this point. Like, you don't know the New Testament. You don't even know Isaiah 53 yet. How could Israel be forgiven? How can you have this declaration? I mean, they have been wicked. We just, we've just been looking at all the judgment they deserve. And God just announces forgiveness? You're forgiven? It's done. And it just stands here in stark, like in this shocking, just, just a shocking statement. Again, Webb says, what explanation for it? Could 50, 60, or 70 years of exile pay for rebellion that had gone on for scores of generations? Could it atone even for the sins of those directly affected, let alone for those of their ancestors? The fact of the matter is that there is far more to this announcement and pardon than first meets the eye. There is mystery here that will not be fully explained until chapter 53, but for now, this simple announcement is allowed to stand alone in all its stark and bold splendor. You are forgiven. So we see one of those themes right now just begins, the forgiveness that is going to come to Israel. And then in chapters 3 through 5, we see that the Lord is going to come for his people. If you summarize those verses, he is coming. So you're going to be forgiven, and the Lord is going to come. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see that the word of the Lord endures. Read verse 8. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Israel, you're in exile. It seems like these nations are powerful, that they're dominant, that they're, you're wondering if they're stronger than your God, but they're like grass in fact, our very lives are like grass and flowers that fade. But what will last? What should we, what is going to endure? The word of the Lord. Again, Webb says, reliance on the word of God is not fatalistic or superstitious. It is not trust in something impersonal like the stars or a good luck charm. It is trust in a person who is committed to us and has all the resources necessary to care for us. I want to read that last part again. When we trust in the word of God, it is trust in a person who is committed to us and has all the resources necessary to care for us. That is the God that they are calling to trust. Trust in his word. It is what's going to endure forever. Then we see this declaration that Israel, that Zion, it's going to be established. It's going to be built up. The, word, the Lord is going to come to it with might and rule from it, right? And so we see that Israel is to be comforted because the Lord is coming. The second point that we see in Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 26, is that Israel is comforted because their God is incomparable. Their God is incomparable. In verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands or marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? To whom did he consult or who made him understand? who taught him the paths of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. There's no one who teaches our God. There's no one who instructs them. There's no one that God goes, what do you think I should do, right? God knows everything. His wisdom is, he, he's all-knowing, right? And he's all-powerful. And there is no, we, we don't even have language to compare how there is none like him. And then in verses 15 through 17, we see the Lord is greater than the nations, the Lord is greater than the nations. Babylon, that you think is so powerful that you're in subjection to right now, think of scales, the old-fashioned scales, right, where you try to get them even to see things weigh the same. 
It's like dust landing on the scale. Does dust make it tip one way or the other? No, it doesn't affect it at all. It's so insignificant, the change is not a thing. That's what these nations are to God. They're like a drop of water in a cistern, right? Think of this, um, yeah, cisterns in the ancient Near East, but even now you can see those water towers, right? What's one drop of water compared to nothing? God is so much greater than these nations. In fact, in verse 18, it says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? There's nothing to compare to our God. Not these idols, in verse 19, that everyone is trusting in, that you make for yourself. Nothing compares to the Lord. Then we see, in verses 21 through 24, that not only is God greater than these nations, but he has sovereignty over these nations. Read in verse 24, it says, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, speaking of the nation, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. These great nations, that God can just blow on them and they're gone, right? And then it, he compares God to creation. And those stars that, I didn't look this up, but I, you know, it would take us, what, thousands of lifetimes to reach the nearest star. <laughs> they're so far away. God's like, yeah, they're about a thumb's width apart. Like, that's how great God is. He can measure the stars, the distance between them with his fingers, right? And again, it's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have hands, but it's just showing he, is, he, knows, he knows the stars we can't number that we haven't fully discovered. He names all of them and calls them out by name. He is greater than his creation. So Israel, God is coming to you. Be comforted. Israel, God is incomparable. So be comforted and have hope in the Lord. And then the third point in Isaiah 40 is be comforted because God cares for you, Israel. God cares for you. Look in verse... 27. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Remember when Sarah taught us in the book of Kings about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and how the, you know, the prophets of Baal are out there cutting themselves and yelling to Baal, and Elijah's mocking him. He says, maybe your God's on vacation. He even uses a Hebrew um, a phrase to say, like, maybe he's in the bathroom. He can't get to you. He's too busy, right? Like, he's just like, you know, your God can't. And so he, Israel's saying, where is God? And Isaiah's reminding them, he is not too weary to take care of you. The reason you're in exile is not because your God is weak. The reason that you're in exile is not because your God isn't strong enough. The reason that you're in exile is not because he's weaker than these foreign nations. He never grows weary. His greatness is unsearchable. He is in control. He is the creator. Israel, God cares about you, and he is in control. And then, not only that, but he will strengthen you. He will help you. Read verse 29. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God will sustain you and strengthen you if you hope in him. But it's contingent, right? It's contingent on waiting for the Lord. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? J.N. Oswald in his commentary on Isaiah says that this expression implies two things. Complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow him to decide the terms. Complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow him to decide the terms. Thus, waiting in Hebrew is not merely killing time, but a life of confident expectation. Those who give up their own frantic efforts to save themselves and turn expectantly to God will be able to replace or exchange their worn-out strength for new strength. How like God, he takes the useless and gives back the good. 
I just, I love that. How like God, he takes the useless and gives back the good. So when we have that dependence and that submission to God's will, that is when you are strengthened in him. So in Isaiah 40, we see all these themes. Israel, your God is in control. He has power over the nations. He is not weaker than the gods of Babylon. He's over the whole creation. And he is going to come back and he's going to restore you. And you need to hope and trust and follow him. So we see all those themes interwoven in, in Isaiah 40. And then if we were to look through Isaiah 40, but particularly Isaiah chapters 44 through 48, one more thing before um, we get to our second point that we need to note is that God promises a return from exile. He says, I'm going to raise up a man named Sirius, and he is going to send you back. Your exile is going to be temporary, and he's going to send you back to the land. In fact, it says that when he does this in Isaiah 48, verse 20, it says, Go out from Babylon, free from the, flee from the Chaldeans, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out from the ends of the earth, says the Lord, who has redeemed his servant Jacob. And so again, God is going to preserve the seed. He's going to preserve Israel in exile. He's going to bring them out of exile. He's going to preserve the line of the seed. He's also telling Israel, I declare the end from the beginning. I'm going to name the guy over, like, I think it's 150 years later, who's going to send you back. I'm going to tell you his name. I know. No idols can do that. I'm in control. Babylon wasn't more powerful. I sent you to exile because of the Mosaic Covenant, right? God is in control. He's in control of history. He's in control of nations. He's in control of the rulers of these foreign nations. And who's going to conquer who? And he says, I'm going to bring you back. But then we're left with this question. When Israel comes back, are they going to be any different? Are things going to be any different than they were before? We keep seeing this, right, in Judges. What was the cycle? A downward spiral. What did we see in Kings? A downward spiral. Israel is not ever living up to who they're supposed to be. So that's why they're not enjoying the covenant blessings. And will it be any different now? Are they going to be different after exile? And that's going to bring us to the servant songs. And that's what we looked at in our lesson today. Because no, Israel's not going to be different. But God is going to have a solution to their problem. When we get to the book of Isaiah, and we didn't look at it in depth in this lesson, but if you ever go back through it again, there are many servants. So it can be confusing. Isaiah is called a servant. Cyrus is called a servant. King David is called a servant. There are actual servants in the book. Israel is called a servant. The believing remnant is called a servant. And then there is this unidentified chosen servant that we looked at in these songs. I'm going to call him for this lesson the servant of Yahweh. And it's that specific servant that we're going to look at that Israel's going to find their hope in. But before we dive into looking at them, turn with me to Isaiah 41, verse 8. And we're going to look again at Israel, the disobedient servant. We looked at this briefly in the lesson. But in verses 8 through 10, we see that Israel is the servant of the Lord. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So we see that servant Israel was chosen by God. They were equipped by God. They were sustained by God. They were given the covenant promises and told not to fear because God was going to be with them. So turn over to Isaiah 42, verse 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? Israel was given, the, we saw this too, the, in the lesson, they were supposed to, they were, they were chosen by God and they were given a mission to be a light to the nations, right? That's what they were supposed to do. And what are they instead? They are deaf, blind, and dumb. 
They are not the servant that God needs. God even, in Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 44, offers him forgiveness. He says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. He's saying, I'm an, I offer you forgiveness. Return to me. And yet, we see that they don't. And so that brings us to the servant of Yahweh. Turn back to Isaiah 42. And we see that first servant song, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. So this is, we're looking at the servant songs, and now we're going to look at each song um, and see what it teaches us about the servant. And again, try to forget you know what's coming so that you can understand how this would have impacted the original audience. And maybe even things that would have confused them or seemed, you know, a little bit mysterious to them. So in 41, in 42, excuse me, 1 through 9, we see, it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So we see things that are similar to servant Israel. They are both chosen by God. They are both given a job, a mission to be a light to the nations. We see that God's spirit is with them. God is with them like God was with Israel, right? But we see a few things that aren't said of Israel. He's, he's going to be a compassionate ruler. You know, that faintly burning wick he will not turn out, put out, and the bruised reed he will not break. He's going to be humble. He is going to be meek, and he is going to be a covenant to his people. I, then that we are going to turn to Isaiah 49. We're going to look at the second song. Again, the servant is speaking. We see that he is called from birth. He has no mother. Again, alluding, sorry, he has no father. He has a mother. And again, alluding to the virgin birth. And in verse 3, we see this interesting statement. It says, he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He is equating this servant with the whole nation. Remember how we keep talking about corporate solidarity, where one can stand for the many? And you could even translate this as, you are my Israel. You, this servant, you're going to function as Israel, the true Israel, right? And why is that significant? Because all of the blessings of the covenant come through Israel. So if Israel fails, the covenant fails. And that's what we see. Israel failed. And they're continuing to fail. And they're living in unrepentance. So God is going to raise up from Israel a true Israel. Who is going, he's going to fulfill his promises through. The covenant's not going to break. He still has a plan through this servant. We also see, and so often we look at, and we know the servant is human and divine. We've seen hints of that and pictures of that all the way up through Isaiah. But this passage focuses on his humanity, right? He says, my work was vain, right? I, I didn't accomplish its purpose. And remember, it just reminded me that we have a sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses. And he wasn't sinning in this because we know he didn't sin, but he just, from a human perspective, he was not successful. But quickly we see in verse 5 God's perspective. Not only was God happy with his servant, but now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. You not only are going to be successful, you're going to fix Israel's real problem. Their, real, their problem is not that they're in exile and they have to get back in the land. The problem is they are wrong with God, and you're going to bring them back to God. They have a broken relationship, God, and you're going to fix that. You're going to bring Jacob to me. You're going to bring Israel to me. And by the way, that's not a big enough job for you. 
God is so pleased with his servant. He's like, that's not a big enough job. Go to verse 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Your job isn't just to bring Israel and make them right with me. Your job is to save the world. That's what you are called and equipped to do. That's how great this servant is. So he, we, and we see him, um, later that in this chapter, kings are going to bow to him. He's going to set the captives free. He's going to have compassion on the people. He's going to lead the nations. The nations are going to come to him. And as you read those verses and went through the lesson, I hope all the covenant promises were jumping out at you, that this had to be the one who's going to fulfill the covenants because these are the answers to the covenant promises. And what is the result of this in verse 13? Worldwide praise. What we were created to do, we will find ourselves doing. We will be worshiping this servant. We know him, right, as the Messiah. So then this song closes, and, and this is a pattern for these three servant songs. You see the song, and then the next chapter, chapter, the rest of chapter 49 through chapter 50, verse 3, is a song of salvation for Zion. We're not going to look at that, but I wanted to make note of that so you know it follows. there's a servant song, then a song of salvation for Zion, and that's what follows it. But we're going to go ahead and go to Isaiah 50, verse 4, and look at the third servant song and see what more we learn about this servant we see in verse 4 that he is daily with the Lord and he listens to God. And in verse 4 it says, sorry, verse 5 it says, The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not back. When it says he opened his ear, we can also translate that to hear. And in Hebrew, to hear can also be translated as to obey. I just thought, wow, what if that is how it worked in our life? To hear is to obey, right? And so that's what the servant does. He hears the word of God and or we could say he obeys the word of God. To hear it is to obey it in the servant's life. He is obedient. Unlike disobedient servant Israel, he is obedient to the God's will. And then we see in verse 6, and this is really the first time, I think, in Isaiah, and even in Scripture, I think it's only been alluded to a little bit in the Davidic covenant that the servant might suffer. But we see here that he is going to suffer. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. This almost seems like a contradiction, like I was disgraced, but I'm not disgraced, right? And what's happening here? From a human perspective, it's disgraceful to have someone beat you and spit on you. And, but from God's perspective, what is the servant doing? He's obeying. And so if you're trying to please man, you've been disgraced. But if you're trying to please God, then you have not been disgraced. In fact, God's going to vindicate you. God is pleased with you because you're obeying him, and that's why you're suffering on a human level of disgrace. And so we see that obedience can lead to suffering. We also see that God is going to deliver him. And we see that we have to, when we follow the Lord, focus on what pleasing him looks like. Because if we look around at our circumstances or even at the world's definition, we're going to see things from the wrong perspective, right? So we can think, oh, he's being disgraced, but really he was suffering for the Lord. He was pleasing to God, and that's the only person we have to please right, is the Lord. So he submits to physical suffering, and he perseveres through it, right? It says he sets his face like flint. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't run from. He doesn't hide. doesn't try to get out of, and he is helped by God. And in verse 9, we see that the persecution is not going to last. God is going to vindicate him. And then again, as that song closes, verse, the rest of chapter 51, or chapter 51, excuse me, through 52:12 is another song of salvation for Zion. And this brings us to chapter, um, the fourth servant song, and it begins in Isaiah 52. On Sunday, Pastor Brian mentioned an unfortunate chapter break in the Bible. This is another one of them. He, um, 
really, chapter 53 should start here. Isaiah 52, 13 is the beginning of the servant song. It's one section. It shouldn't be broken up um, where the chapter break is. It's, just, it's all one unit. And this is the high watermark of Old Testament theology. This is um, where we understand how forgiveness is going to be achieved so clearly. That forgiveness declared in Isaiah 40, verse 1, now we understand how it's going to happen. So for, we're going to break this down into sections. And so it's the first section is going to be Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. And this is just an open summary of the whole song, what's going to follow. And it shows the paradox and really what the Jews are going to struggle with and even what the world's going to struggle with. This servant is going to be so despised, suffer so greatly, people are going to say, is that human? That's how some of it could translate. Like, is he going to be that disfigured? And yet the next verse says he's going to be exalted to where every king bows down before him. How could somebody suffer like that and yet be so exalted? And again, we understand, but they didn't. And so try to forget what we know and just be like, how? They equated so much suffering like the book of Job as deserved, as punishment you were supposed to get. And you don't see righteous people suffering for the unrighteous. Like, how could you suffer like this and be exalted? It's so unbelievable. We get to our second section, um, verses one th Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. And this is going to be the rejection of the servant. What happens is so unbelievable. It says, Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Like, this is so unbelievable that nobody believes it, right? And it's because he has these humble roots that people don't understand. He has nothing, he has nothing that appeals to the world, right? Nothing that we would value on a worldly level. If he's not beautiful, he's not rich, he's not famous, right? He's just guy from Galilee, and we even see the news about, does anything good come out of Galilee, somebody says, right? And so he doesn't have the beginnings that the people expect. And it, again, Oswald says, who could have believed that when the arm of the Lord was bared to deliver his people, it would look like this? So Israel can't really believe it. They, they don't understand. So we see that the servant is rejected. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see the sacrifice of the servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So now we understand how we're going to be forgiven. Somebody is going to take our place. Someone is going to sacrifice themselves in our place. And it becomes clear, to, and in verse 6, it becomes clear, this is not just about Israel anymore, right? When it says, all we have gone astray, and it's already been declared in the other servant songs, he's going to save the world. All of us are in purview here. All of us who would trust in him for redemption, we have all gone away, and he is dying to save not just Israel, but to save the world, right? And he is taking our place, he's taking our punishment, he's taking our, it's it's the vicarious atonement, it's penal substitution, he's taking our place. And it's clear too, and we'll see this in the next sermon, that we have to have a human substitute. Remember the blood and goats cannot take away sin. We and in that, this analogy that we see in verse 6, that we're all sheep, well, look in verse 7, it says, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before its shears were silent, so he opened not. He's compared to a lamb. 
So like to like, right? We're sheep and he's a lamb who dies for us. And it's an analogy. It's a, he, we have to have a human sacrifice to atone for our sins. So now we are going to see our next section, Isaiah 7 through 9, the death of the servant. So we'll, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was perfect. He had done no wrong. And that shows, again, that was required because if he'd done any wrong, he'd just be suffering his just penalty, right? He had to be perfect so he could suffer our just penalty. And he takes our place. But unlike the sheep who didn't know that they were going to be sacrificed, he knew, right? He, Philippians says, he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He knew what was coming, and he submitted to the Father's will. He submitted to the humiliation. He submitted to the suffering. His obedience led to that humiliation and to that suffering. <clears throat> Another thing that we see throughout this section is just this picture of atonement over and over and over again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Barron says the repetition in this passage of the suffering and death is not an error or defect. Rather, it is making it impossible for any ingenuity or learning to eliminate the doctrine of vicarious atonement from this passage by presenting it so often and in forms so varied and yet still the same that he who succeeds in expelling it from one place is compelled to meet it at another. Thus, in this verse, which fills up the last of the humiliation and sufferings of the Messiah, even unto death, it is once again repeated that it was for the transgressions of my people that the stroke fell upon him. You cannot remove from this passage the atonement, which is why most Jews don't ever read Isaiah 53. You know, it's very, most of them do not know it. There's a great YouTube video. Um, I'll try to find it. They don't know how to tell you to search for it right now. But somebody, in, they interview a bunch of Israelis asking them questions about Isaiah. They have no idea. They don't read it, and if they ever read it, they say this is the suffering of the nation, not of an individual, which is also something you can't do with the text. So it's just easier for them to avoid it. The atonement is all over this passage. So we've seen his rejection, we've seen his suffering, we've seen his death, and now we're going to see in Isaiah's 53, 10 through 12, the triumph of the servant. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Remember how Israel's wondering, is their God strong enough? This isn't something the Romans did. This isn't something the Pharisees did. This isn't something someone more powerful than the Son of God did. This was the will of God to bring about the salvation of many. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And right there we should be wait, he's going to see his offspring? He died. And so even though Isaiah doesn't say resurrection, here we have resurrection. He's going to see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we see that the suffering is designed by God, but it's not the end. He is going to be raised again. Moiter says, Isaiah does not use the word resurrection, but these verses display that the servant is alive after his suffering. The condemned is righteous, the helpless, the victor. 
And we also see that this was the greatest evil that has ever happened in the world. The crucifixion and murder of God's son is the greatest evil of the world, but it brings about the greatest good. Doesn't that take us back to Genesis and all that we learned that God is going to work, you know, he can turn evil to good, right? And it also reminded me of Judah. Remember when we were in Genesis and we studied, why does Jesus come to the line of Judah? And we said Judah was the brother who repented, and he was the brother who was willing to lay down his life for Benjamin in the end. Not at first with Joseph, but he was in the end, and that was kingly. Here we have the king who is also the servant, and he lays down his life, and this is greatness to God. And he will therefore be exalted and the king of the world. And remember how we also said that God is doing everything to make his son glorious. And you see how God is making the son glorious. So this section, again, is going to conclude. Chapter 54 is another salvation song for Zion. And it's a beautiful picture of a husband and wife who are estranged who are now together. And they are, they, are, they are brought back together, and they have a great marriage, and it's a picture of God bringing Israel back to himself. And then we come to Isaiah 55, and it's an invitation, an invitation for salvation. Read verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. He's saying, because of the sacrifice of the servant, because of what he's accomplished, come and know him. Come and follow him. Turn your life over to him. And that was the perfect, I thought, transition to bring us to, as we conclude today, what, how should this impact our lives? How should this change us? And I came up with three responses we should have. One, we have to repent and believe in the suffering servant. We have to trust in him. We have to trust in Messiah. And if you, if you haven't, like this, Isaiah has made it clear, there's a way of judgment and there's a way of hope. And the way of hope is only through the suffering servant. And it's one or the other. There is no middle ground. And Isaiah makes that so clear. You can reject the word of God, you can accept it, but you can't change it to fit what you want. You're going to be judged or you're going to have to follow. So if you haven't believed, you, this is a call for you to believe. But if you have, if you have believed and trusted this Messiah, then we need to trust and obey. Jerry Bridges says we trust God because God is all-powerful. We don't have a problem that God isn't strong enough to deal with. We also trust God because he's wise. He might have the power to deal with our problem, but he might not know how, right? But our God is all wise. So he has the power to deal with our problems, and he has the wisdom to know exactly what that problem requires. But that wouldn't help us if God wasn't good and loving. Because he might have the power, and he might have the wisdom, but he might not want to help us. But our God loves us. You see it all over the passage of the servant. He's come to save the world. He loves us, and he is good. So he will use his power and his wisdom for your good. And that is why we can trust God. I also have a great quote that I forgot to wrote down who say it, so I'm just going to say it's not for me. But trust is never easy, it, but it is the key to unlocking God's power. Trust enables people to walk the path that God has chosen for their lives, whether it be pleasant or unpleasant, without growing weary or wanting to quit. So if you find yourself in a trial or in a place of life where you're thinking, I want to quit, then ask yourself, are you trusting? When we're trusting, that unlocks the power to follow the path, whether pleasant or unpleasant. We need to trust, and we also need to obey. The servant's obedience is an example to us, and it shows us that by obeying, it could cause your suffering, right? So often we think obedience leads to blessing, but obedience can also lead to great suffering, and it doesn't mean what you're doing is wrong. It means you did the right thing. Obedience can lead to suffering. Again, Webb says, the servant is not simply to be admired or wondered at. He is to be obeyed. In short, in describing his own discipleship, the servant has shown them what God requires of all his people not empty profession, but wholehearted, costly obedience. We saw how much the cost was for the servant. Do we obey when it costs us? 
Do we have a costly obedience or do we hold on to our idols and disobey instead? We have to trust and we have to obey. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for these women. I thank you for the power of your word. Um, again, Brian said on Sunday, some texts can teach themselves and this is one of them. Your servant has accomplished so much. He has done more than we could ask or imagine for us. He has taken our place. He's provided suffering. He has provided salvation through his suffering. And we praise you for your plan to save the world. We praise the son for his redemption that he bought for us with his life and his death and his resurrection. And we praise you for giving us the spirit to help us walk in your ways and to be more conformed to your image. And we pray that that's what this would produce. Studying this passage would produce fruit of obedience and trust in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.